has been amazing to be part of. I think we have a responsibility to get people to think differently. You have to have your vision. You can have a great connection between agriculture and people. We're a very important partner to share our experiences. Every new idea is going to contribute to what our future in food is going to look like. It gets bigger. You're enabling people to afford to live a good life. The Roofscape is also the part of our cities that is closest to the sun. Culture and agriculture have a strong link. Welcome to Groove, your urban farming podcast series. We are very pleased to make you discover exclusive stories of urban greenhouses. This podcast adventure was made possible thanks to Interact Northwest Project. Hello, we are so pleased to have you today. Could you present yourself in a few sentences? So, my name is Oscar Rodriguez. I am a registered architect in the UK. I'm also the founder and director of Architecture and Food, which, as the name suggests, is about the intersection of the built environment and food systems. And that arrives at urban food systems. And one of the things that I've been focusing on is advocating for uh, adoption of the Building Integrated Greenhouse as a way to make better use of our roofscapes. My parents are from Galicia, the northwest of Spain. They moved over here in the 60s, and as a kid, we would go back to Spain two months a year. So I kind of lived between the urban and the rural, and I had an idea of what rural life felt like, and I had a very intimate understanding of what urban life felt like living in the middle of London. And I was fascinated by this one particular building, and I think that's the root cause of everything that's happened in my career, of all of my thinking. There's a hotel that burnt down in the 70s, this beautiful granite hotel in Mondariz Balneario which is a small town, a spa town near where my parents are from. And it had been set fire to uh, because I think they wanted to claim some insurance. And what happened over the next 15 to 20 years is that nature started to reclaim it. And I found it to be the most magical place as a kid. Literally, it just made me, it did things to my psyche that I still, I can still feel now. And I think it probably just sparked an interest in this idea of how do you maintain some sort of equilibrium or some sort of healthy relationship between you know nature and artifice like what we do as human beings and then the life support systems around us and then i think obviously with architectural training and then with that particular incident that i mentioned before naturally it just seemed that food was this way of making that relationship between nature and artifice a win-win for both, you know, humans and the architecture that they inhabit. I was working at Foster and Partners after my undergrad, and I decided I'd been working there for about six years, and I decided that I was going to move on to another company. And there were a lot of people moving from Foster and Partners to another company called Make, and um, a friend of mine got me an interview, and I went. And I uh, presented to Ken Shuttleworth, the, the founder of Make. And my undergrad work wasn't very good, but I had a lot of Foster's experience. And so Ken Shuttleworth 
said that I was too much of a Fosterite and he didn't know what I cared about. And that started an identity crisis. And I honestly had no idea what I cared about at the time. So I was probably about 24, 25. And so what I started doing, I started thinking, okay, so if I were to address this question fresh, what are the important things? And I got really obsessed with the survival rule of three. So three minutes for air, three days for water, and three weeks for food. And, and then I took my architectural skills and I overlaid them on these three survival rules. And, you know, air is interesting, but, you know, okay, no, it's all right. And then water, you know, water and architecture, yeah, cool, there's, there's links there. And as soon as I overlaid it onto food, it was an explosion of just activity in my brain. <laughs> and I just got very obsessed and I got in deep. And then I explored it more in my uh, postgrad architectural training. I did a back of envelope calculation of how much food could be grown on London's flat roofscape. But what came out of that was, wow, there's a lot of capacity in cities. And, you know, places like London are still very import dependent on for things that really shouldn't be imported for things that we could grow here. But unfortunately, yes, the market is difficult to service. Um given all of the factors that affect our food system. But now that carbon is higher up on the agenda, we've got a new metric to satisfy. And um, I don't think we should be importing basil from Kenya anymore. So today you have a human farming project. What is it all about? So in 2012, I uh, started ANF, Architecture and Food, And I would sort of go out and talk to people and sort of say, hey, why don't we do this with our rooftops and why don't we do that? It wasn't easy. They sort of go, yes, I see that's the future. But then afterwards, you know, mm, no, we're not going to pay for that. We're not going to do anything with that. Blah, 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 blah. Anyway, so um, after a few years of kind of just, just trying, failing, <laughs> uh, doing whatever I could, um, I decided, all right, I'm going to have to just go deep into this. So I would spend hours on Google Maps and I found 140 rooftops that were at least 200 square meters with visible access. And if you know anything about London real estate, you'll find that a lot of it is very opaque. It's very difficult to find who the beneficial owner is, who, you know, who the right person to talk to is, and their contact details. there's something called the land registry um, and that will give you some information but then a lot of buildings aren't necessarily owned by people they sometimes they're owned by trust sometimes they're they're owned abroad uh, shell companies uh, it's a complete and utter jungle <laughs> of complexity so 140 buildings became 60 60 or 70 60 or 70 is what i could could find pretty good contact details for You know, I'd send it out. And then in terms of response, maybe it went down to 16 or 17. And then, you know, out of those, I'd have a few emails and, you know, if I was lucky, maybe a meeting. But ultimately, it reduced down to one. <laughs> so that building is in Clapton. It's owned by um, an affordable artist studio management company called Cell Project Space. And the owner is called Richard Priestley and his partner is Milika Miritu. And they run a gallery and then they manage a number of buildings for artists and makers. And it's all affordable rent. And it's, you know, it's very low for London. So they're a not-for-profit and they do fantastic work. 
and the spaces that they create are you know very robust very belts and braces but exactly what artists need and in a city like london as it gets more expensive it becomes more difficult to provide this and they found a way to do that and that's what they specialize in so i send the template and six months later i get an email back saying hello mate do you want to come over and uh, have a look at it? I quite like the idea. We want to add two or three more floors or however many floors we can. And then, yeah, we'd love to have your greenhouse on top. That sounds brilliant. <laughs> and, you know, this is illustrative of kind of like, you know, the art world. Or You've got to find those host building owners that are willing for a bit of a little bit of an adventure. And, you know, I couldn't have found a better one because they are of the art world they think of new things and they take risks but you know they don't want to be too crazy with it but they're happy to sort of accept a level of risk not like an office building manager who's like there's i don't want to take any more risk i have no bandwidth to deal with anything but these guys have been great to work with and they've actually become friends and you know i've worked with them on a number of buildings now And what was the main difficulty that you had to overcome? Um, well, we're still in it. So we haven't really, you know, that's a very retrospective question. You know what? It's actually been really weird because we had a pre-application meeting with uh, Hackney Council. And normally these meetings are, they generate lists of no's. <laughs> no, you can't do that. No, you can't do this. No, you can't do that. But I've never had a meeting, a pre-app meeting like this where they basically just said, love that, love that, love that, yes, maybe get rid of the car parking. And I was like, what? Yeah, you don't want the car parking. Yeah, but normally in a pre-app, they ask you for car parking. And they were like, no, these days, you know, cycling. And I was like, great, yeah, I, I like it. We can do that. That's not a problem. And then they asked us a few little questions about details that we weren't really ready with, but we sort of had a nice conversation. I mean, you've got to understand, normally with pre-apps, it was the complete opposite. <laughs> we were worried about everything. We made a lot of accommodations to make it as acceptable as possible. And the major accommodations that we made, they said, you don't need to do that. <laughs> so it's, there is appetite for what we're doing. And if it's done and executed well, hopefully that appetite will grow. If you look at the global food system, there are products that are grown on one side of the planet. They're shipped over to the other side of the planet. They're processed there. They're put in cans on the other side of the planet. <laughs> I mean, there's a meme going around about frozen peaches that were picked in Argentina, packaged in Thailand and then sold in Europe. The whole point is that our global food system supply chains are too long, they're too complicated, they waste a lot of energy, and they do not deliver good food and good nutrition. At the same time, we also have other problems. We don't eat the right things. We should be eating a lot more vegetables. We should be much more vegetable-centric. And I see you know, introducing food production into the city as a food literacy vehicle. This is like you see it growing you're just more intimate with it. You kind of understand, oh, that's where it comes from. It should also stimulate curiosity. But more than anything, it should stimulate conversations about what it is that you're eating and, and how you're living your life. And ideally, it would inspire you to kind of go, okay, maybe I should think about my health a bit more. At the same time, you know, you put greenhouses onto buildings. There are 
all sorts of things that you can do with the thermal strategy of the building below. I mean, ultimately, the thing that frustrated me about architecture um, the most was this idea that roofscapes are just lids, they're tops on boxes that take rainwater and drive it towards a gutter that goes down a pipe and into the sewer. And that's it. That's what a roofscape is. And if you think about it, the roofscape is also the part of our cities that is closest to the sun. <laughs> it's closest to the clouds. It receives a lot of energy, a lot of water, a lot of everything. And we do nothing with it. Instead, we burn fossil fuels to get energy. Um, and fossil fuels have a renewal phase of tens of millions of years. You know, solar energy has a renewal phase of eight minutes. So, and then, you know, water. I mean, just look at what we do in order to ensure that we get fresh water. Are there better ways of doing this? Well, you know, and then you add food to it. And the wonderful thing about food is that it combines water, nutrient, material, energy, labor, social aspects. It really is the full house of the kind of things that architects love to address. And it's a wonderful tool to design with. And now, admittedly, a lot of people might think, okay, well, you know, is the market ready for it? Well, I would say probably right now, no, but it's getting there. And the reason being is that the industrial agricultural market has matured since the 50s. And we are only starting to consider maybe we should, you know, return food back into the city design equation. Um, at the moment, there's clearly a very strong migratory pressure towards cities rather than the country. And in many ways, like we want to see the country or the rural areas become wilder to sequester more carbon, to support, you know, more biodiversity, to support the, you know, habitats for more and more animals, because if anything, we're losing a lot of them. So to then take the, you know, some of the horticulture, some of the agriculture from rural areas and to move it to the city, Sure, there's going to be a fight there. But at the moment, in a place like the UK, we import 56% of our fresh food, which I think is, is a pretty bad starting point. You don't want to be that dependent on other people supplying you with fresh food, especially given that fresh food, you know, you have to maintain a cold chain. It's very energetically expensive and it goes off very, very quickly. And by the time you receive it to eat it, the nutrition content has gone way down. And the quality is usually not that great. So ultimately, yeah, I mean, you know, there's going to be friction between rural and urban, whatever happens, but there is a dependency. And what we kind of need is a unifying vision about how we want to govern, you know, our biosphere. And at the moment, it's quite clear we need to sequester carbon. We need to increase biodiversity and we need to um, ensure that people live as healthy a life as possible. At Goof, we help you develop your project and overcome hardship and smaller issue. How did Goof help you in your process? So Groove contributed to the construction kind of detailing and I had a very valuable conversation with construction competence team on details that I was considering for this. And we discussed lots of different iterations of how to arrange the slab and the insulation and then the, everything that we needed and how it would connect into the greenhouse system. Then with the energy team, we talked about, you know, how do we minimize the transmissive thermal envelope um, and keep it to the areas that you need it 
so that you just have a much more viable greenhouse that doesn't leak energy as much. And so we looked at form, volume, envelope. Obviously, we looked at materials. Um, we're still not sure, is it going to be glass? Is it going to be polycarbonate? Is it? It's probably going to be glass, I think. Um, but I'm about to start working with an ETFE company, so maybe we do that. Um, it was a lot of kind of like design, um, like having a sounding board to be able to sort of ask questions and get good advice and play around with that advice. Uh, and Groove was great for that. The architect for this is probably going to be one of the most important people. The two most important people, I would argue, is the operator and the architect. And then, you know, the structural engineer has a very specific kind of role, but the architect and the operator will need to sort of understand how it's built, what it looks like, how much light it blocks out to neighbors' windows, but also what the business model is. And the architect should really get involved in the business model, you know, to understand the kind of logistical process that go on, the movement of people, of material, of energy. Like, you know, building integrated agriculture, what, what I'm finding it's a very integrative thing. So it's not like just building a house. <laughs> You've got to do more than just build a house. You've got to design the family that goes into the house. You've got to design the menu that is cooked in the kitchen. Do you see what I mean? It's more, it's more holistic. It's much more like the details really matter because ultimately there is some sort of operational aspect to what you're designing. And if you design it badly, then you have inefficient operations. If you have inefficient operations, you have more likelihood that the business fails. So it's a much more complex challenge than just simply designing architecture, because it's architecture plus, you know, the horticulture. Every single urban farm will be quite complex. And so there's no rule of thumb. I mean, there are tips. There's no kind of like template for doing it. You have to study the market. You've got to find the opportunity. Then you've got to understand your constraints, usually because you're in the city. And that's like, you know, how big is your roof? If you needed to expand, where would you expand to? And then you've got to understand your growing systems and, your, and the equipment that you use. And then beyond that, I would argue you should also think very strongly about the secondary value streams. Can you train people in there? Can you hold events in there? Would it be pleasant to be in there all year round or are there certain months where you've got to be a bit more careful or you've got to introduce shading? But can you use it, your farm, for more than just production? And what else is going on nearby that offers synergies with your project? Look to network as much as you can. Because while food is cheap, it's even more important to extract every bit of value out of what you're doing. And it does make the business model more complex, but it also makes it more exciting. And then I'd say, good luck. Because <laughs> it's not going to be easy. But, you know, in the kind of world that we're living in, it's very difficult to be truly kind of convinced that what you're doing is in any way good. So today, social media are very important. Where can we follow your project? So I'm very active on LinkedIn um, and I do have a website, albeit one that I'm still very embarrassed about and I need to update as soon as I can get some time to do it. And that is on 
architecture and food, A-N-D, food.com. And uh, yeah, please go ahead and reach out if you have any questions uh, or any projects. Do let me know. I'm carrying on with Grosvenor. The most exciting thing that we're looking at at the moment is potentially campaigning to get urban food systems from, you know, the allotment and the city farm, the ground bearing kind of urban food systems or urban farms through to the building integrated ones like the greenhouses or like the rooftop terraces of allotment planters to the vertical farms, getting all of these types of food system represented in planning use classes. In some countries, they call it zoning laws. Uh, Here we call it use classes. It's the most basic way that we kind of manage what we do with our land. We say, this is residential, this is commercial, this is institutional. And what we don't have in the city is anything that sort of says, this is where we grow food in the city. We've got agricultural land use, and that's very clear. And that's usually in rural areas because use classes kind of represent what we think land should be used for. And at the moment, there is no use class that says we should grow food in the city. And so we're talking at the moment, um, looking to form a rather large consortium and lobby to create a new use class in the town and country planning use classes order piece of legislation. We hope that you have enjoyed this episode. Maybe it even inspired you to join the urban farming adventure. You can learn everything you need to know about Groove and our guideline on groove.eu. And make sure to stay tuned for more Groove stories of rooftop greenhouses. See you very soon in another episode.